0: In creative professions that don't have a defined line of success, where success is measured in different things, notoriety or being published or popularity or or recognition through awards, it's just harder than a lot of professions to map that success. So you have to really want it and you have to be used to the fact that the mapping of my success. I mean, I, I look at it today while talking to you and I'm thinking, yeah, I did all right for myself, but it, it's never stopped. I never got to a point where I looked back and said, all right, I made it. It still continues. I'm still the guy at work who puts his hand up extra. I still uh, am trying. I'm still looking for that affirmation. And I don't mean it in a bad way. I don't think it's an unhealthy thing, but I do want that. I do want to please. I do want to succeed. I do want my parents to still think I made the right decision. So I'm, I'm driven on a daily basis, and that's never it.
1: You're listening to Creative Breakthrough, the podcast that provides you with the strategies to elevate your creative passion to the next level. I'm your host, creative hustler and chicken wing lover, Shireen Kassam, a.k.a. The Funny Brown Girl. And yes, I have an unhealthy obsession with chicken wings. Now, get ready to flex your creative muscle and keep winning. Welcome to The Creative Breakthrough. I am your host, Shireen Kasam, a.k.a. The Funny Brown Girl. I am so excited to share with you my conversation with Ali Velshi today. It is such a great interview. It's such a great conversation. He dropped so many gems. I know I say that about every interview. But you know what's really interesting? Like, if you've been listening to all the podcast episodes that I've dropped, and I think we're now on 66 or 67, every creative has some of the same advice which is like keep going, get mentors, work hard. But everybody also brings their own spin to it. What helped them get to where they are? What are the traits that helped them get success? What is it that helped them make it in in their creative endeavors? And so that is what I really love about these conversations, that everybody has a different story about how they got to where they want to be. And I think that that's something to take away from these episodes is Everybody has a different path. Everybody has a different journey. And it's just taking all these snippets, right? All these pieces of advice, all these gems, all this knowledge, and putting it together and seeing what do you feel comfortable with? What can you take from these conversations and implement in your own life to make yourself be more successful in your creative endeavors, in in your creative journey. And you will just see, like, everybody has had their own experiences from all the way on episode one when I interviewed Tina Mabry, who's a director, and she was on Queen Sugar. She has gone on to be one of the most coveted female directors in the industry. But she waited for her moment. She was in L.A. for years, hustling and grinding, trying to make it until it finally happened. Same thing last week with Bevy Smith. She was hustling and grinding for years until it happened. And so what's really interesting about both these stories is that these strong women didn't give up and they kept working towards their goals. They knew what their goal was, and they knew that they were good enough to do it, but other people hadn't recognized it yet. And so what could they do in the meantime to get people to recognize it? And if you listen to those episodes, you will hear them talk about what they did during that time to get recognized. And so for me, that that's, that's the parts, those are the stories that I love to take away from it. Because as we're sitting here, and for a lot of us, we may still be in lockdown due to COVID, we're thinking, we're getting older. Opportunities may be passing us by, right? We're not getting to get out there and work on our craft as much as we want to, especially if you're a performer or somebody who has to be in front of an audience like myself as a stand-up comedian. But there's still other things that I could be doing in the background to get noticed, right? And so it's figuring out what are those things? How do you keep hustling? How do you keep driving forward? How do you keep getting your name out there? And I can tell you, it is hard. But in the last year, I have done almost as much, if not as much, of getting my name out there as I could have if we were not in COVID. I mean, granted, I haven't been on stage performing for big headliners to get my name out, but I've still had the opportunity to be the keynote speaker. I've had the opportunity to work with Spotify. I've had the opportunity to host a global New Year's Eve show. And so there are things that you can do. And so I urge you to go back and listen to these episodes and see what did these creatives do to be successful and how can you emulate it? And if you're a new listener to this podcast and you're like, oh my goodness, 66 episodes is a lot, Shireen. How am I going to get through all that? Well, if you go to my website, funnybrowngirl.com, there is actually a quiz you can take and it'll ask you a few questions and then it will recommend to you episodes to start with. So I highly recommend starting with the quiz to figure out what episodes will be best for you to listen to. Okay, before I get into my conversation with Ali Velshi, some quick announcements. Creative Breakthrough, this podcast. Creative Breakthrough is trending in Pakistan, which brings us to a total of now 23 countries where Creative Breakthrough is now trending as a top 100 podcast. That is super cool to me, and I can't thank you all enough because I wouldn't be trending if it wasn't for you all. So I thank you and I appreciate you for sharing this podcast, writing reviews, and subscribing. Shameless plug, if you're on a smart device right now, you can hit that three buttons on your on your screen, and you can share this with someone who you think will really enjoy this conversation with Ali Velshi, or you can write me a review, or you can just subscribe. I would like all three, but I won't be greedy. Okay, second announcement, I have started a new podcast. I've mentioned this a couple times already, but I just want to keep reiterating it. I've started a second podcast. It is called Radio Rejects Live. Now, where did the name come from? Well, me and my co-host both used to be on the radio. Again, I've talked about it a a, a bit, and now we're not. And for those of you who have heard my story, I'm not on the radio anymore because I'm Muslim. And you might be thinking, wait, what? Well, there's an episode, a couple episodes ago, I talked about the story about how I got taken off the radio because I'm Muslim. Um, I should rephrase that. I didn't get taken off, I was given a choice. I could apologize for being Muslim, or I would walk away from the radio and I chose to walk away and now my co-host and I who is also a radio reject he was on the radio as well and he's now he's not we decided to start our own podcast where we talk about what we want to talk about with anybody without anybody telling us what we can and cannot do so go to facebook.com and search radio rejects live and follow us we go live every other sunday and it's actually a video podcast. So you could actually watch us and see us or you can listen to it in audio form, whichever works for you. Last announcement. Next week, we are going to be talking to Nelu Honda. Now, the name doesn't sound familiar. She's actually a really amazing person. If you live in Toronto, you may have gone to one of her comedy shows. She runs a comedy show called Yas Queens, which is now called Mirchi. And she showcases women of color. And I actually had the chance to do one of her comedy shows when I was in Toronto a couple of years ago. But she's a writer and an actress. You may have seen her on the Netflix's hit show *Working Moms*. She's also part of the Baroness von sketch show, and now she's a writer for *A Little Late with Lily Singh*. And if you don't know Lily Singh, she, check her out. She's got some amazing clips. She actually started her career on YouTube. She started making videos that started to go viral, and now she's the host of a late-night talk show called *A Little Late with Lily Singh*. And Nelu Honda is one of her writers, and so we'll be talking to her next week. So if you have any questions, Send them my way. Okay, so today, today we talk with Ali Velshi, and I have to say a special thank you to my sister Zara and Rahil for setting this interview up because without them, this would have not been possible. So thank you, Zara and Rahil. Now, who is Ali Velshi? Okay. Now, he gave me a, his bio and I trimmed it, but there's just so much good stuff in his bio. So this is a little long of an introduction, but I didn't want to leave anything out because this is how amazing this person is, Ali Velshi, like, just, just listen, okay? Ali Velshi is an anchor and correspondent with MSNBC and the host of Velshi. How cool is that? He has his own show called Velshi. Most recently, he hosted Ali Velshi on Target, a nightly primetime show on Al Jazeera America. Velshi has reported from the U.S. presidential campaign trail, as well as covering ISIL and the Syrian refugee crisis from Turkey. The days leading up to the nuclear deal from Tehran, the tensions between Russia and NATO from Eastern Europe and the high Arctic, the debt crisis in Greece, and the funeral of Nelson Mandela in South Africa. Velshi joined Al Jazeera America from CNN, where he was the channel's chief business correspondent, anchor of CNN International's World Business Today, and the host of CNN's weekly business roundtable, Your Money. Velshi also co-hosted CNN's morning show, American Morning. Velshi was nominated for two 2016 Emmy Awards for work on disabled workers and Chicago's red light camera scandal. He is also the author of Give Me My Money Back and the co-author with CNN's Christine Romans of How to Speak Money. Born in Kenya and raised in Canada, Velshi graduated from Queen's University in Canada with a degree in religion. So what are we waiting for? Let's get started. Welcome to the guest chair, Ali.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: No, thank you. This was great. I'm so glad that we got to connect. It took a, it took a pandemic, huh?
0: (laughs) Uh, It's kind of interesting, right? How this has done that because there are, things that I'm doing, uh, events that I'm participating in, things that people uh, watch or, you know, panels that they listen to that they weren't doing beforehand. So that's one good takeaway.
1: Yeah, no, I love it. It's been great. I've been catching up with people and just like getting to to meet people and talk to people like you, like who've been huge influences in my life. So it's awesome to have this opportunity. My pleasure. I usually, I usually don't get nervous before I do these, but my dad does not listen to my podcast. And he said that this episode he will listen to. So we we'll, have we'll to... make
0: sure it's really good.
1: <laughs> exactly. We have to make sure it's amazing. So he's going to start listening to all the episodes and I can have one new subscriber. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very good.
1: So when I, when I start these interviews, I really love to just start from the beginning. I would love to know how your creative journey started.
0: Uh, accidentally, I would say I, uh, I went to university, I was at Queen's University in Canada, and I I sort of thought I was gonna be a lawyer. And uh, I I had a friend who had just uh, entered law school and she had been an undergraduate at the same university and she had said to me, you know, if you're going to go to law school, it's fairly prescribed, so why don't you have some fun with your undergraduate? Do things that are really neat. So I I asked her what she meant by that and she said that I should study uh, religion. And I was actually studying politics, and I thought, why would I study religion? And she said, well, it's a really tiny department, and they don't have enough courses if you're doing it as a um, as an intellectual pursuit to actually fill it. So you are you actually end up having to take other courses in history and in English and things like this, and you'll get the fullest experience. So I did that. I followed that instruction, and then she said, you know, you have to write a lot. So I wrote uh, for the school newspaper, and. So it was all accidental. All this creative stuff that I was doing was on the side on my way to a career, which, by the way, I never undertook. I never went to law school. I I never did the stuff I was going to do. I got sidetracked with uh, the idea that the the creative side of me and the liberal arts study was more interesting than what I planned to do. Now, I, I I, I don't want anybody taking the advice that you shouldn't. If you're geared toward a professional degree or going that way, that you, you shouldn't, you know, necessarily do that. But I found creativity on the side while on a path to a professional career.
1: And was that creativity in the extracurricular activities you got involved in while you were at university?
0: Some of it was. Some of it was the actual area of study, right? I, okay. I went from uh, wanting to study politics and then right. law into studying uh, things that weren't on the agenda because they were uh, they were a little bit off the track of what I wanted to do. So it opened my mind to the idea of literature, of creative writing, of, of things in history, um, of religion and religious texts. So I, I, I sort of retuned myself into right. this world where, you know, a lot of us go to university and, and our parents hope that we go to university to, uh, you know, embrace a profession and mm-hmm. come out of it that way. So I wasn't in, it was, creativity was not, it's not the kind of thing you did. I mean, maybe you could be part of a play or, or join a, a music group or something, but it wasn't really something that was going to be central to my education, and it became central to my education. So some of it was what I studied, some of it was extracurricular, some of it was the school newspaper, some of it was uh, different clubs I joined because I sort of felt free to pursue that sort of thing. Now, let me tell you, this was not without some concern from my parents who were wondering what happened to their, you know, kid who was on his way to college and had a a, a pretty good future in front of him. All of a sudden, I'm talking about becoming a journalist and things like that. A little bit alarming to my immigrant parents.
1: Yes. How did they? How did you convince them that you were making the right decision?
0: I don't think I ever did. Uh, <laughs> I think to this day, when my parents turn on TV daily and see me on TV, I think they must look at themselves and say, "Wow, he made something of himself." Um, I remember. I remember very distinctly telling my dad I wanted to be a journalist, and I, I got such a quizzical look out of him. Um, he sort of looked at me like, I, 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 don't, I think you just said you wanted to be a journalist, but that can't possibly be what you said. And his major concern was that, how does that work? Like, how do you actually make a, a, a living out of doing that? And how do you ensure um, it's, not a, it's not a certain a career path? How do you ensure that you'll be the successful journalist if you're out there? And I think at the beginning of that journey, there's no good answer to that. There's no way you can tell your parents, hey, in 20 years, you'll look back and you'll think I made the right decision, or you'll watch me on TV every day and you'll think that was the right thing to do. There was no way to tell them that. There's still no way to tell anybody's parents that. And I I completely get that. But it was the natural thing for me to do. And I, I should just tell you on the side, what I really wanted to be was an engineer. I really wanted to be an engineer. And, and to this day, I love engineering, and I'm involved in professional pursuits around engineering, uh, but I have no aptitude for it whatsoever. So if that was what I wanted to do, I would have been a disastrously bad engineer. I would have, the bridges that I built would have fallen, the buildings that I built would have collapsed. I wasn't good at it. What I'm doing now, I'm good at, and I loved it, and I've always loved it. And I think that's the takeaway that I realized luckily early on that I had a passion for something that was outside the norm and hard to describe and I went for it
1: exactly and do do your parents ever think um because I can tell you this a lot of parents are sitting at home thinking I wish my kids were like Ali (laughs) Velshi
0: it's times have changed so first (laughs) of all when I became a journalist um there weren't many people uh, who looked like me and came from my background who were journalists in, in North America, just the way it was. Right. Uh, now there are. Um, now it's not this weird, like it's, it's mainstream, right? If somebody actually says I want to be a journalist, I actually now have to caution people into saying, you know, this field is changing a lot. And I want you to think about this, but it's now it's mainstream. Uh, but back then there was nobody to look at. Right. There were very, very few role models, and there were some, and by the way, I relied on all of them, uh, and they, ha- they were all mentors to me, which is why I want to do that for other people. But it just becomes so much easier when you're having that conversation, either with your parents or yourself or your guidance counselor or whoever you're talking to, to be able to point out there and say, that's what I'd like to emulate, or that's what I'd like to be better than. That was the difficult part in my profession. It wasn't easy to point it was easy to point to people. There were successful journalists. It wasn't easy to figure out how my path and my background coincided with that type of success. And that's the difficulty uh, in creative paths, because it's just a little harder to, to see how your mold fits into that. If you're going to be an engineer, and I love engineering, or an accountant or a lawyer, you can at least chart out a path to say that unless something really weird happens, I'm going to get from here to at least here, and if I'm really lucky, I'll get here. In, in less defined or more creative professions, it's just tougher to do that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you had mentioned your dad was not sure how you were going to be successful in this, in this field, and you have been totally successful. I mean, you've written books, you've hosted your own shows, you've, you've been recognized for your work. Um, how, how do you think you've gotten so successful? Like, What's driven you to be so successful?
0: I think there are uh, two things. One is the obvious, and that's perseverance, right? I, I've loved what I've done, and I went for it. And and I was always um, that driven by it that I would do the extra thing, put up my hand, go the extra mile. So, so, But I think that goes for everybody, right? If you're not prepared to try hard and succeed, some people make it by not trying, but most people actually have to work. And I, I was one of those. I was more of a B student than an A student, always trying harder uh, to do well. The other thing was probably a little bit of the doubt that, w- that was set in because of the look I got from my parents or because it was a, a little bit non-traditional. The-, the need to actually do better. So the degree to which I had to actually prove myself because I already had the assumption made that this is not a good idea. This isn't exactly going to work out the way you planned. So now I got to prove it to everybody. And-, and you know that motivation is good to some degree. I think it can become harmful, you can become ridiculous about it, but I think I had just enough of it to say, I'm gonna prove everybody a little bit wrong, I'm gonna show them that I can succeed at this. So it it causes you to want it a little bit more. Um, in, In creative professions that don't have a defined line of success, where success is measured in different things, right. notoriety or being published or popularity or, or recognition through awards. It's just harder than a lot of professions to map that success. So you have to really want it and you have to be used to the fact that the mapping of my success, I mean, I, I look at it today while talking to you and I'm thinking, yeah, I did all right for myself, but it, it's never stopped. I never got to a point where I looked back and said, all right, I made it. It still continues. I'm still the guy at work who puts his hand up extra. I still uh, am trying. I'm still looking for that affirmation. And I don't mean it in a bad way. I don't think it's an unhealthy thing, but I do want that. I do want to please. I do want to succeed. I do want my parents to still think I made the right decision. So I'm, I'm driven on a daily basis and that's never ended.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's every immigrant's drive to degree, right, yeah. at the same, at trying to make it, make the American dream, make it so your parents are still proud of you, because I feel like we never feel like our parents are proud right. enough. That's
0: good, and, yep. and and I don't mind that. I mean, look, there's obviously some psychology <laughs> associated with that that can make it dangerous, so we don't want to be crazy about right. it. Right. But I think that's the great part of the immigrant ethos, right? That's the part we must never forget. And when we are successful, we also need to not forget that. Because what you don't want to do is become complacent to say, well, I made it, anybody can make it, um, everything's going to be that easy. It shouldn't be easy. You should want it really badly. You should chase it, you should always want it. You know, a piece of advice my, my parents gave me when I was very young, uh, I, I don't know where the conversation came up, but it was about perfection, about achieving perfection. and. My, my dad said to me, he was quoting, and I've lost track of who it was. It was a composer who was, um, uh, you know, practicing with an orchestra a particular piece and wanted to achieve perfection and, and said after achieving what he thought was success, how, how bad it became. How bad it, it becomes when you actually achieve perfection or that level of success, because the striving goes away, mm. right? The immigrant yeah. experience is striving. And if you're not thinking that there's something more to overcome or something to get better at, or there's still a little nervousness about how you're going to do it, you can let complacency set in. And complacency is the enemy of everybody's success.
1: Yeah. No, that's, that's a great quote. That I love that. How do you feel like you said when you started in journalism that the the space was very small in terms of people who look like you, but yeah. you, you were able to create a niche for yourself. Like, how do you feel like what were the steps or the characteristic traits you had that helped you create that niche for yourself and and become who you are today?
0: Uh, Mentorship, because I was really bad, really bad. And I tell this to people all the time and they don't believe me. And then I finally, a few years ago, found some old VHS tapes and my parents had a VHS uh, player still, maybe they do still. And I played it for my wife. And, uh, and she finally, she thought I was being self-deprecating about how terrible I was in my early days as a reporter. I was really bad. And I had really good mentors who really wanted me to succeed. Now I've I were my mentor, I would have said to me, kid, you're not going to make it. Uh, you're just that bad. But I had really great mentors. And a few years ago, a, a writer from the Toronto Star wrote a, a sort of a feature article on me and went back to some of my mentors to talk to them. And this one mentor of mine, uh, who's a very successful journalist in Canada, actually said, he, he, he said this to the reporter, he said, you know, all the energy and all the stuff that he brought, meaning me, switched off the minute the camera went on. And I always knew that if he could convey who he was, once the camera went on, this guy would be a great success. But for some reason, he'd get in front of the camera and this vibrant, energetic, eager, aspiring, striving guy all disappeared. And that's actually what happened to me in my my early days. I was nervous and bad at it. And a few people just looked at me and said, you've got what it takes and we're gonna work with you until you get that. I am completely, Uh, the product of of mentorship, guidance, and advice.
1: I love that. How did you find your mentors?
0: So that's the one thing I was never bad at. I always reached out to people. I always um, believed that it's never going to hurt to tell someone you admire their work and you'd love their guidance. Uh, And and I, I encourage people to do that all the time, that find people whose work you like and reach out to them. In my opinion, everybody wants to help. Everybody wants to be your mentor, your guide. They want to take credit for your success if if you have success. So I really built a community of people who seemed invested in my future. And some of that had zero reason to be invested in my future, by the way. A lot of my early mentors, I had no personal connection to, no family connection to. I literally reached out and said, I admire what you do. Can you help me go down the right road? And this was very early in my career where it wasn't obvious how they would help me. But sometimes it became a reference letter. Sometimes it became feedback on the work that I did. Once I got into the career, it was constant feedback. And it was done in such a creative, caring, loving way Mm -hmm. that I never felt small. I never felt bad about it. I, I just think that's such an art to be able to give people guidance that builds them up and makes them feel good. And it's an art that I'm still trying to get good at. But I sought those people out early, and lots of them. And I would say that in the vast majority of cases, people responded positively. And this was before the internet, before email, before all this stuff. You literally wrote letters to people or tried to phone them. And it did work. And today, with the remarkable accessibility that people have to their potential mentors, they should take it. And and I, I think this applies to you no matter where you are in your career. If you're mid-career, you should still have mentors and you should be mentoring people. Mm-hmm. It's a two-way street, but that is really what got me to where I am.
1: You said that your mentors gave you a lot of compassionate feedback and a lot of feedback out of love and care. You're very big on Twitter. You use Twitter a lot, social media. How would you say creatives Creatives get very, I feel like we're very sensitive people. How do oh, you yeah. deal with that negative feedback or that, that feedback that's just hateful, or that comes. I to, am
0: I- very sensitive, um, and and that's never going to change. People tell me all the time, stop paying attention to it, just ignore it. I can't ignore it. I check it all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm always seeing. I'm, I'm because I'm looking for affirmation, right? I, I, I'm pretty proud of what I do. I'm a very confident guy with a good career. But I'm always looking for affirmation. There are two kinds of people, I guess, right? Those who need affirmation and those who don't. I know a few people who don't. I'm fascinated by them. But I will never be them. No matter how successful I am, I will never be the person who doesn't care what people thought of the job I did. Now, I can defend the work I do against uh, nasty criticism, but it never feels good.
1: Hey, it's me, Shereen. Sorry to interrupt. Creative Breakthrough listeners, are you enjoying this episode? If so, I have a quick favor. Could you leave us a review, whether on Apple, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you're listening from? It's a great way to pay it forward and let other creatives know about the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, I'll get back to the original interview now. Thanks. Bye.
0: I never want that to be the case. I happen to work in a field where there's going to be Uh, negative negativity and social media has given people permission to engage in negativity that real life didn't give you permission to do because someone would punch you in the face if you said things to them that you would say Mm -hmm. on social media and people still say things to me on a daily basis today they were saying stuff it's like what's wrong with you that's just not normal to say that to somebody Mm -hmm. but that is the price you pay when you are in a creative field that it is subjective more than it is objective and People believe their opinion matters more sometimes than kindness and compassion. My general view is engage with people, be open to criticism, listen to it. I'm a member of the media, so in fact, it's important for me to listen to how my viewers respond to what I do. I have a high bar. I don't like it, but I have a high bar for accepting what criticism is. And there's a point at which it stops. There is a point where I just block people on Twitter because there's a level of nastiness that I don't wish to engage in. And sometimes before I block them, I, I invite them to take a different approach to their criticism, to say, look, totally get it. You have an absolute right to what you, what you believe and I should hear it because I'm a public uh, figure and, I, and I'm in the media, so I should hear your criticism. But I do need you to do this in a different way. And if you're not prepared to do it, this will be my last uh, interaction with you. And I'd say half the time it works. They come back and say, all right, you're right. Let's, let, here's what I was really mad about.
1: Mm-hmm. And half
0: the time they're not. They're just nasty. Block.
1: Yeah, because we are very sensitive people. Sure. <laughs> and it's amazing how you can, get, you can get looped into that social media, like those negative comments. And you can oh, allow yeah. that to bring you down in such a, in such a dark place.
0: And I look, I, the one thing, uh, again, that I've got and that people should surround themselves with is I've got uh, people who look out for me on that front. So um, you know, I got one friend. He works in PR at NBC, and he, he's sort of, you know, responsible for me on one level, on a formal level. But actually, he's more just caring of me. He'll he'll say to me, he'll see that I'm going down some rabbit hole or or I've stepped in it on on social media, and I'm you know, there's there's thousands of uh, of tweets going back and forth, and he'll just check in. You okay? You doing all right? Uh, you know, I don't know if you meant to step in it like that. Sort of giving me permission to say, walk away. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm not going to be less sensitive in life. And I don't think I would counsel anyone to be less sensitive. Your level of sensitivity is who you are. Mm-hmm. It, it's what allows you to be creative. It what allows you to, to broaden your range. But you do have to manage it because I've spent many an evening getting sucked in by some kind of social media argument or criticism of me. and. Three hours later, no one's life is any better for it. It is just three hours. You're never getting back in your life. I'm in a bad mood. I'm feeling small. I've had a fight with someone else. And by the way, half a million people who follow me on Twitter have watched this back and forth wondering, what are you idiots doing?
1: I love that. I love the honesty in that conversation, because it's so true. It's so it's true. true. And then you're like, I could have done something useful in that time. I
0: could have cooked. I could have built something. I could have possibly <laughs> learned a language. Something other than this. So mm-hmm. be careful of the time suck that yep. social media or criticism can be. Again, it's, it's a hard balance, and I'm not. 25 years from now, we can do this again, and maybe I'll be wiser. <laughs> I don't know what the balance is, but find it. At some point, just learn to switch it off.
1: Yep. So you, you are very honest about yourself, very genuine on camera. You, you're very open about the fact that you are a Muslim. Um, how has that helped your career or hindered it or even both?
0: Uh, I I don't think it's hindered it at all, in truth. And that's probably because of the era in which I live and the places in which I grew up. So I grew up in Toronto, Mm -hmm. which uh, at the time that I grew up in the 70s and 80s, uh, really, I mean, in the 70s, I was a baby. So in the 80s and and the 90s was a very welcoming place and a place that was discovering itself and a place that was very immigrant friendly and uh, curious about other people. And I just had a good community around me, so I, I grew up with great support from my family and my community and the, the world into which I entered. Um, certainly mainstream media was not a diverse thing in, uh, in the 90s in, in TV in Canada, but it was going to become one and I was at the front end of that and I have probably benefited from that over time. Um, the negativity has been very little and small. It's, it's been small-minded. It's been prejudice, basic small-minded prejudice, which still shows up from time to time. Um, just yesterday, somebody tweeted something about, I don't know what I was saying. I think I was talking about a treaty that Donald Trump pulled out of. And in the list of treaties that we pulled out of, I mentioned the Iran nuclear deal. And someone tweeted, he, he's an Islam, an Iranian uh, Whatever' something or other, and it's like, I, do I correct them and tell them that they're actually wrong, or do I just roll with the fact that they're a bigot? And mm-hmm. it's fine because they actually meant to be a bigot to me, so I don't really want to correct their bigotry, uh, even though it's you know the, the origins are different. I, I don't think it's hurt me. Um, and that is not to say that that being different or being from non-traditional backgrounds in a particular field isn't hurtful or damaging at times, and I certainly don't want to diminish anybody's experience who has felt that for whatever reason I've been. My career has happened at the right times, where I would say it's been overwhelmingly welcome. And by the way, I moved to the United States right after nine uh, eleven, into a world that was very strangely welcoming and open to me. But again, think of what I do. I work in media. I moved to New York. Right? That's not that's media in New York, New York is not the heart of bigotry uh, in America. I'm sure there are a whole bunch of people who don't know I, who that I exist. And if they did, they'd be very mad about it to this day, but I don't encounter them.
1: I like that. So I wanna ask you this question. So a lot of creatives get this stigma. We get the stigma that we're not good with money. We don't know how to balance a checkbook. Like we live beyond our means. What advice from a financial guru perspective would you give us as creatives in terms of how to how to, how to to be better with money? It's a
0: great conversation. I had this similar conversation with my friend, Ray Suarez, uh, the journalist the other day, because we were talking about, immigrants and money and how they think about it. And obviously the first generation of immigrants are uh, often tight with money, remarkably frugal. um, uh, And and that's the world in which I grew up, right? Where we buy things in bulk and (laughs) my mother had a bunch of sisters and we'd buy like four gallons of something and everybody would distribute it in their own bottles. Nothing went to waste. Uh, I still can't have a plate taken away from me with food on it. Everything had five uses to it, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, what, what is worrisome, sometimes in the next generation, when you achieve success through education or professions, um, you can sometimes move too far away from that. Now, the good part of that is when you get to the next level and you have a degree in engineering and you become a coder and you start a business uh, and you're an entrepreneur or you, you start some other business. So you've got that, uh, that immigrant work hard ethic and it drives you to excellence in a different area. What sometimes happens is people get uh, complacent. They're not worried about making ends meet. They didn't leave the, with, uh, the old country with nothing but the clothes on their back. Okay. And, and sometimes that, uh, there's a fear that that immigrant ethos can disappear very quickly. I will tell you that my general experience in 25 plus years of reporting on money and dealing with personal finance and, and writing a couple books on it, is that it's not uh, a correct, reputation. It's not a correct ethos. Uh, I think it it takes uh, a long time for immigrants to lose track of the fact that they come from people or even the children of immigrants lose track of the fact that they come from people who were very worried about prosperity and money. So I think fundamentally, if you look in the United States at the record of immigrants, both as hard workers, as Small business entrepreneurs and then big business entrepreneurs and and people who are successful in professions like law and medicine and, and engineering, I think the record's actually pretty good. Uh, it does come down to a remarkable emphasis on education, which I think permeates through the generation. So I think you can find like you can anywhere else examples of people who are not good with their money, but I don't think it generally tends to permeate with immigrants now, if I may, the one thing that Uh, I I do think immigrants can learn from two lessons. One is a lot of people don't like taking loans. So their kids get into college and rather than having the kid take a loan, which is relatively easy to get in the United States, parents will take out of their savings, uh, including their retirement savings. Not a good idea because your kid can do better uh, with their education and be able to pay that loan, number one. Number two, diversification. It, it, It matters for everybody but it matters a lot for people who, you know, who are so tied to their money. Uh, You've got to be diversified, and I don't just mean that in the stock market, but in your approach to life. Are you spread out enough so that when things that are bad, like what we're going through right now happen, you have options in front of you. It's, it's not the most sophisticated thing, but it's definitely something important to think about. I'll go to groups, particular groups, and I'll give a speech about the economy, 50,000 feet, trends you should know, and then I open up to questions, and everybody wants to know about a particular stock that they should buy. That's not how you should think about life. Be diversified.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, nope, that's very true. So before we jump into the lightning round, final thoughts on any advice you have for creatives?
0: Stick with it, It, it's it's, it's tough. Uh, If you are in a community of creatives, then everybody will embrace what you're doing and be supportive. But the difficult part is how to bridge that gap between where you come from and the uh, sometimes conservative perspectives about being a creative that that you come out of and the world that you can succeed in. But I think it's like anything else. To to me, it's like being a a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer or an accountant. Um, There are paths you can follow, there are disciplines you can engage in and, and, and if you buckle down and do it, your chances of success are similar to people's success in other areas. But the success may be measured a little differently, and that's what you have to be prepared for.
1: Yep, exactly. And how would you say, I mean, for, for a creative, and I'm going to tag onto your question or your, your advice say, if for a creative who's not based in the United States and is trying to become the next Ali Welshi and come to the United States, what advice would you have for them?
0: Look, the one bad piece of advice, the, the one bad piece of bad news is immigrating to the United States has become very, very difficult uh, these days. The good news is that um, economically that's not sustainable, actually. America is desperate for immigrants. We have a, uh, a negative replacement rate, so it's just bad policy to not have immigrants. So there will one day be another opportunity, but immigration has become very hard these days. But the bottom line, particularly in in my Slice of the world in journalism is that it is a global field, uh, and 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 many parts of the creative uh, universe are global. Uh, designers, journalists, musicians, um, artists, this stuff it doesn't know boundaries. When I said earlier that I like accounting and I like engineering, the reason I like those is because they don't know boundaries, right? If you get an engineering degree in India, it's the same as getting one in Canada. Um, you, you, can, you can succeed anywhere in the world. And that's the beauty about being a creative. There's nowhere I've been in the world and I've been to most of the world where there is a creative class and they are important, and they have exactly the same struggles. So that's the beauty of it. If you are pursuing the type of thing that is a, has global appeal, meaning being a good journalist, being a good artist, being a good designer, being, being great uh, in communications, you can do that anywhere.
1: I love it. Okay, lightning round, I'm gonna ask you six questions, rapid fire, just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Got it. What's the best piece of advice you've received?
0: Um, the best piece of advice is the piece of advice I got from my parents about uh, don't strive for perfection, strive to do as well as you can.
1: What's your definition of success? Happiness. What's the one thing you wish you knew before embarking on your creative journey?
0: Then I shouldn't worry so much about it. Pursue (laughs) it. Pursue it with passion.
1: Who inspires you?
0: Uh, this is, it's an unfair answer, but everybody, the, the the strength that I have is that I really do look at the strength of the human spirit and get inspired by it. So when I go out there in the world that I report and people say, who are the most interesting people you've reported on? It's regular people usually going through trials and tribulations. That's where I get my inspiration.
1: What's a habit that's helped you on your journey?
0: Uh, I don't sleep well. Uh, I am up all the time. I am constantly consuming information, which is quite suitable for a journalist.
1: Yeah, you, you email, I was surprised you were emailing me back when I was emailing you in the middle of the night.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I'm not much of a sleeper. I found my career.
1: It's the creative brain in us. And what do you want your legacy to be?
0: I, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I, the, the danger of what I do is we live so in the moment that I don't know what success looks like. I, I think we live in a time when my profession is under a great deal of strain and pressure and criticism, much of it valid. And I want to be able to say that I leave, I left this place better than I found it.
1: Ali, if our listeners wanted to find you online, where could they find you?
0: Uh, at Ali Belshi on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm, I'm on Instagram. I'm not so good with it. Uh, <laughs> and everybody's pressuring me to get a TikTok, but I don't really know how to do that.
1: Yet. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I, I passed the age range, I think.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, so am
1: <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time today, Ali. This was super useful and super, uh, the advice you gave was just amazing. Thank you so much.
0: What an absolute pleasure. I'm glad you reached out.
1: Wow, what a great conversation. Am I right? I mean, the gems that Ali dropped in terms of just how he got to where he was, all the steps he took, the resources, the mentors, just putting himself out there, asking for feedback. I know as creatives, sometimes it's so hard for us to ask for feedback because we're very sensitive. And he mentions that we are sensitive and we have to embrace that because it's not going away. And Ali found a way to find the balance behind being sensitive and asking for help and look at where it got him. So key takeaways from today's episode. One, if you love it, go for it. Two, don't be complacent. Three, find mentors. Four, block people on social media. And five, stick with it. So go flex your creative muscle and keep winning. Thanks for listening. Stay connected about upcoming resources, including opportunities, festivals, competitions, and grants to help you grow your creative passion by subscribing to my bi-monthly newsletter by visiting funnybrowngirl.com forward slash subscribe. Don't miss out on a life-changing opportunity and subscribe today at funnybrowngirl.com forward slash subscribe. And hey, if you decide to go on Instagram today, follow me. I'm Funny Brown Girl. I'm Shirin Kassam, and you've been listening to Creative Breakthrough. Now, go flex your creative muscle and keep winning.